Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to Where is Bruce Shuler? This is episode four, An Inconvenient Truth. My name is Graham Crowley and thank you very much for listening. The podcast has been developed for an adult audience. Listener discretion is advised. There is discussion about death. The thoughts and opinions in this podcast are mine. Just to recap where we have been and where we are now... In episode one, we heard of the location of the actual disappearance of Bruce Shuler. Episode two, we heard from Fiona, Lisa, Tenya and Elaine. The desperate plea, the begging to give up Bruce's remains. In episode three, we heard of details of the day Bruce Shuler went missing, as well as sensationalised media reporting. You may recall this episode was intended to be called The Killing Shot, and in fact I had already scripted that episode. I intended to spend the episode discussing the minute of The Killing Shots. In the interim I was researching material for further episodes when I became distracted. And here we are, only four episodes in, and already I find myself going down a rabbit hole. Many listeners would remember the 2006 movie, An Inconvenient Truth, about global warming. Well, this episode has nothing to do with that, but the movie title is relevant and significant to this case, as you will hear later. Details of the crime scenes distracted me, and down the rabbit hole I went. And in that moment, this murder case was turned on its head. Just to recap, There were two crime scenes, where Bruce was first shot at by Diane, what I called the primary or first crime scene. The police, for whatever reason, referred to it as the last place Bruce Shuler was seen. They didn't actually call it a crime scene, I'm not sure why. I expect the crown position on my claim would be, what would Crowley know? 
That was not a crime scene, it was just the place where Bruce Shuler was last seen. When I last checked, firing a weapon at Bruce Shuler could result in any number of criminal charges, but specifically attempted murder. That would make it a crime scene. And it would take a lot of persuasion to convince me otherwise. I do discuss narrative fallacy and how that works in a later episode. And I have seen evidence of it in this case. Where Bruce was killed or captured by Stephen, 140 metres to the north, was what I deem the second crime scene. If you haven't already done so, it may assist you if you pause the podcast and view the various photographs, diagrams and maps on the Facebook pages to help orientate yourself. The first crime scene was interesting because nothing was recovered. Not one single piece of physical or scientific evidence. There were no witnesses to the actual shooting, if a shooting ever took place. There was no blood, no DNA, no footprints, no broken branches or twigs, no tyre tracks, no flattened grass where the ute stopped, no spent ammunition, no discarded belongings left in a panic. As I recall it, an Aboriginal tracker was brought in to assist, the last such tracker in Queensland. I'd love to hear what he found, or didn't. Bruce was carrying a fair amount of kit that day. There was his detector, spare batteries, battery pack, a three or four kilogram pick, a GPS hanging off his belt, loosely I've read. If you were shot at, would you maybe drop something in the resultant panic to flee? It is usual at crime scenes to find discarded possessions. There was no yelling, no fear, no anger, no cry of pain, and remember Lockhart's principle. The two offenders in this instance brought two things into that crime scene and took two things away. Nothing was found. Zip. Lockhart's principle may have to be rewritten. I wonder if that is why the Crown preferred the idea that it was Shuler's last known location rather than a crime scene. It was as though Bruce Shuler never existed in time at that spot, and that deserved closer examination, to see if we can confirm he was ever there. What evidence existed that Bruce was ever there? Well, three prospectors placed him there. They said he was there. They corroborated each other. The prospectors then went in different directions, as would be expected. That is what prospectors do. They must separate, at least a small distance, so their detectors do not interfere with each other. But how do we know Bruce was still in the gully when the Strubers chanced by in their ute? Travelling who knows where. Prospectors Bidner and Anderson said so. Let's explore that. The prospectors were virtually within sight of each other before the shooting. Not all the time. In and out of sight. A few hundred metres apart. They could hear each other at times, they said. Moving around the bush. Crunching leaves and twigs. Their detectors buzzing, whining. Their picks hitting rocks as they dug for gold. Anderson and Bidner said they did not see each other. Groth and Bidner said they did not see each other. And they were all definite about that. 
Why would it matter if they had? I found that surprising. I discussed that in a later episode as well. Tremaine Anderson said this in his police statement at point 25, talking about what happened after they entered the gully. These are his words, but not his voice. Bruce and Kevin stayed roughly together. About 20 minutes afterwards, I cut back down the gully, across the hill, as I wasn't getting any targets. I wasn't picking up anything. I saw that Bruce was alone, down at the bottom of the gully, where I had got the gold the day before. I asked him how he was going, and he said that he hadn't gotten anything. I could not see where Dan or Kevin were at the time. I then walked back upstream, across the road again. So I was heading back towards the vehicle, roughly on the opposite side of the river to the homestead. I was about to start prospecting in the gullies more towards the car camp on the same side of the river that Bruce was on when I heard the vehicle. This was about two minutes after I had just seen Bruce. A few things struck me about Anderson's comments in his statement. After completing that statement on 10 July, he drew a mud map of various locations. He placed himself on the northern side of the plant equipment, which was on the side of the road. I have placed two copies of that mud map on the Facebook pages, one with yellow highlights. Three days later, during a video reenactment, he placed himself on the southern side of that machinery. And I discussed that significant discrepancy in a later episode. And I might add, I considered that a red flag. At trial on day four, he placed himself on the northern side of the machinery. But when challenged, he switched to the southern side. He told the court he had been detecting for an hour or so. Maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. Bidner had this to say in his police statement at point 62. These are his words, but not his voice. I then walked around there for probably an hour having a look. I was swinging me detector and I dug a little bit of rubbish, some old tins and stuff like that. I then proceeded to wonder if Kevin had found any gold. So I'm thinking in my head, I wouldn't mind having a go there myself, you know. So I slowly started working my way back to them, which would have took me another half an hour. When I got over near the gully, I came over the edge of the crest of the gully. I was a good height above the gully, probably 15 to 20 metres high. Not in distance, but in height. I looked down and I could see Bruce in the gully there detecting. I was probably about 50 metres up from Bruce, maybe a little bit more. We'd left Kevin there where Bruce is now. So I looked down and said to myself, ah, Bruce is having a go. He's got the latest model detector, so it was a good chance he was going to get a bit. He had his back to me and he was standing in front of a bank that rose up out of the gully. I was about to yell out to him, but I noticed he was preoccupied with the target and that he was digging in the gully. He was listening to his detector and he had his headphones on. His dog was right at his side, on his right-hand side. I thought I'd just sit there where I was and watch him for a bit. I'm not as fit because of my medical condition and I haven't got the stamina I used to have. So I thought I'd just sit down there and watch him and see if he gets a bit. I sat down and had a drink from my water bottle. 
I got a sucking one, like a hydration pack. I was just having a suck on that, and along the river, on the river bank, I heard and saw the roof of a vehicle coming along up the road that comes out of the river and runs along the spur on the opposite side of the gully. I was on the adjacent ridge and the car drove up on the opposite spur to me. Straight away, I recognised it as Mr and Mrs Struber's car. At trial on day four, Bidner agreed he sat there watching Bruce for about five minutes. There are some glaring inconsistencies with the evidence of these two witnesses. The first is the time they were prospecting before the Strubers arrived. Bidner said one and a half hours from leaving the group to returning to the gully. Groth said one hour. Anderson said 20 minutes or 40 minutes or one hour, depending on which version of his evidence you accept. Which was it, Tremaine? And I consider that another red flag. Tremaine said that within two minutes of talking to Bruce, the Strubers arrived. Bidner said he was sitting there for five minutes, yet did not see Anderson. By all accounts, he should have been a party to the conversation. He should have at least seen Anderson walking toward the road. Bidner was just on the other side of the gully after all. And as I said, I did not consider it a big deal if they saw or spoke with each other, but they obviously did. Red flag. And why did Anderson alter his position in relation to the old plant equipment on the side of the road? And further down the rabbit hole we went. And although Diane was apparently attracted by the dog barking, would she have even been able to see Bruce in the gully when they drove up the track? Watching the videos, people standing on the edge of the gully, yes, could see down in the gully. But Diane was in a ute, and I have not seen any evidence where a ute was seen or videotaped and being able to see inside the gully. Moving a few metres in either direction, that is, up or down the dry creek bed, would have afforded Bruce cover from the ridge Diane was on. Out of sight. In a reenactment, Bidner said this about seeing Bruce in the gully where Diane fired around. In these edited comments, these are his words and his voice. About there the dogs barked, and then just as I seen it there, that's where she's made the indication that she heard something, and then the vehicle stopped, as I did on the, on the day. I had a clear view of Diane Struber uh, jumping from the vehicle or getting out of the vehicle. She turned, uh, looked like she flicked the seat forward, and I saw a rifle produced. Okay, just to clarify, uh, you've said that you've seen Diane Struber. Yep. Uh, what, what seat was she in? She was in the passenger seat on, on my side. On your side? Uh, I couldn't see Stephen Struber. As you can see, you could see a driver, uh, but she was on the passenger side, obscuring his view. But I presumed it was him in the car as well because they always travel together. Okay. All right, and uh, I did not witness him come around the front of the car because he was still getting out as she's pulling the gun out. Okay. Once I got a visual of, of her pulling the gun out, I've watched her sort of look down on it, like she was looking at it to see if it was loaded or something maybe, 
And with that, I've crouched and gone, shit, I better get out of here, and I've headed off this way. Okay, so you've made your way um, heading, heading up over the yeah, line? in a westerly direction. Okay, um, Dan, as you can see, uh, just below your feet there, uh, there's a yellow marker in the ground. Yep. That, what, what can you tell me about that? That, that marker is the marker that represents the position that I was in when I observed the vehicle on the ridge there. And I, at the same time, I could observe my friend in the gully there, Bruce Shuler. I had a clear vision of, of the vehicle and my mate, Bruce. Bidnar confirmed Bruce was in the gully and Diane was on the ridge line above. Prima facie evidence right there. Bidnar placed his mate, as he called him, in the gully. On that scenario, with a woman above you with a rifle, you could only go along the gully, north or south, not up the ridgeline. On the evidence, Bruce chose to head upstream, or north. Yet there was no blood trail or other forensic evidence leading from crime scene 1 to crime scene 2. None at all. Red flag. And it was searched in a grid fashion, shoulder to shoulder. Conclusive evidence, Bruce had not been wounded at that time. And Bruce managed to flee in panic without dropping one single solitary possession. A detective wrote this. These are his words, but not his voice. The area was described as just above the gully line and at the bottom of a steep embankment. There were visible tyre tracks in the grass down the steep embankment to the area of the burnt grass. The area was approximately 140 metres north of where Shula was last seen. Ask yourself this question. Was there any evidence, any evidence at all, apart from the two amigos that is, that Bruce Shula, Diane Wilson, Stephen Struber, or either of their Land Cruiser utilities were ever at that first crime scene. None that I can find. What an extraordinary situation. Arriving at the second crime scene, Bruce seemingly started climbing out of the creek bed, up a steep embankment, directly towards the shooter. Had he stayed in the creek bed, he would have continued to have been afforded cover from any shooters on the ridge. In other words, he broke cover. The other three prospectors ran away from the shooter. Bruce ran toward the shooter. Weird, given the circumstances. On the Crown case, Struber and Wilson drove down that very steep ravine in low-range first gear in their 4x4, directly in front of him. Would Bruce have seen the Strubers? Seen them, he should have been run over by them. Unless he was completely deaf and didn't hear the diesel engine roaring. At this scene, two areas of burnt grass was eventually located. As someone said, it could basically be covered by a blanket to give you an idea of the size. Found as far away as 10 metres from one area of burnt grass were items of significant forensic value. Lockhart's principle would no doubt be hard at work. But again, it wasn't. Whilst the offenders may have introduced two things into the crime scene, 
which have since been discredited, they took nothing with them. Or at least no forensic evidence was found on the offenders, their vehicle, their clothing or their bodies from this crime scene. If you look at the mud maps on the Facebook page, the distance by road from where the car first stopped and Diane fired the shot to the bottom of the second ravine where the second crime scene was located was around 200 metres, including a loop in the road described at trial as an earlobe. What is the significance of that? The prospectors repeatedly stated the car only moved about 20 metres and stopped again after Diane fired the shot. And after the second shot, it turned around and drove back toward the homestead. Red flag. Big red flag. More about that in the next rabbit hole adventure. Some of the forensic material found at the second crime scene included four half-burnt matches, one of which contained Bruce Schuler's DNA. Some months later, family members returned to the crime scene at the request of the solicitors, and a further four half-burnt matches were recovered. An old slug was recovered containing Bruce's DNA, botanical matter, that is grass and leaves, with blood spots of Bruce's blood, an empty film canister contained Bruce's DNA. Blood stains on several rocks, of which two rocks contained Bruce's DNA. The blood in this area consisted of just a few small drops. On the flat land at the top of the steep ravine, and on the steep land leading down to this crime scene, there were knockdown trees with gouge marks. There were scratches on a termite mound. There were vehicle tracks leading down from the top of the ravine to where the crime scene was. A termite mound with gouge marks that had a positive comparison with a cast taken from the unregistered Land Cruiser was detected. It was concluded by a police officer, the gouge mark was consistent with having been caused by an object such as the underneath of a vehicle or a similar type of tool capable of leaving such a mark. Excuse my ignorance, which was it? Did the gouge mark have a positive comparison, whatever that means exactly, or was it a gouge mark consistent with having been caused by an object such as the underneath of a vehicle? I note it says the underneath of a vehicle, not the underneath of the unregistered Land Cruiser, or any other Land Cruiser. And wouldn't all Land Cruiser utes of that particular model be the same underneath anyway? Tire impressions in cow pads that corresponded in class characteristics, tread design and wear to the tyres on the unregistered Toyota Land Cruiser or any other tyre with similar tread characteristics. A piece of black twine matching Bruce's DNA What wasn't found? You heard Detective McLeish believe Struber executed Bruce here with a .357 Magnum round. What was not found at either crime scene was a blood trail. An expended .357 round, drag marks, signs of a struggle, disturbed ground and bushes, 
just like the flattened trees. On the evidence, this was a spur-of-the-moment murder. The Strubers stumbled across Bruce Shuler in the gully and believed it to be Dan Bidner on the Crown case. It was a disorganised crime scene. The offenders managed to dispose of a six-foot-tall, 90-kilo dead weight between the two of them. They left no drag marks, no blood trail, no disturbance of the area whatsoever. They were able to protect themselves, their clothing, the tray of the ute, the inside of their vehicle from blood and Bruce's DNA. What happened to the expended round? A metal detector returned no results in the entire area. A .357 Magnum will go through an engine block. It will easily go through a human body. That was what the round was actually designed for. In the 1930s, US police found themselves being outgunned and the Magnum was developed to even up the firepower. Maybe Bruce was marched off and shot elsewhere. So many red flags. Where to start? How did Bruce's DNA get on burnt matches? Does that mean Bruce started the fires? Was he prospecting there? Or was it the case his blood just got on the matchstick? According to his widow Fiona, Bruce hated prospectors who lit fires to assist in prospecting. You may recall Detective McLeish told journalists he believed the Strubers started the fire to dispose of blood. How did Bruce's DNA get on the old slug under the plant material? Was it in the film canister and fell out? And the twine? Did it fall off his body when he was dragged over to the tray of the ute? Or marched over to the ute, hands above his head, at gunpoint? Silently. Because he definitely wasn't calling out for help, or in anger, or in fear. The other prospectors heard nothing. Maybe he was doing a Hansel and Gretel and leaving the equivalent of a trail of breadcrumbs for investigators to track him. So many questions about that scene and the steep ravine down to it. Red flags are plenty. We know Bruce was at that secondary crime scene, or at least his blood and DNA were there. Can we positively say he was there? I would not be confident in saying that at this time. In fact, I wonder if it was a staged crime scene. I went looking for an explanation by the police or the Crown how they explained the evidence at this crime scene and how it was connected to Stephen and Diane. I'm still looking. And here is the really bizarre thing with this case. Stephen Struber and Diane Wilson accepted the scenes of crime officer's conclusion that potentially linked their unregistered vehicle to the second crime scene. In other words, they were admitting their unregistered vehicle was possibly at the crime scene, yet they maintained they were innocent. Who does that? I would be comfortable in saying both defendants did not understand what their barristers were telling to agree to. 
naivety at its finest. I found the wording of that admission sheet evidence confusing, and I have experience with unpacking those sorts of statements. I suspect the jury just accepted it at face value and concluded the Strubiute had been at the second crime scene. Ask yourself this question. Was there any evidence, any evidence at all, apart from the two amigos, that is, that Diane Wilson, Stephen Struber, or either of their Land Cruiser utilities were ever at that second crime scene? Apart from the limited, since-discredited forensic evidence, unfortunately, none that I can find. It was noted in the Appeal Court of 2016, the following was said. Tyre marks matching the accused vehicle were located coming from the direction of the top of the slope slash steep embankment. Actually, that was not correct. Not even close. I just read out what the police officer concluded, but I will repeat it as it is important. Tyre impressions in cowpads that corresponded in class characteristics, tread design and wear to the tyres on the unregistered Toyota Land Cruiser or any other tyre with similar tread characteristics. But that morphed into tyre marks matching the accused vehicle. A police officer made a statement in 2012 which was given to the Defence Councils. In that statement, the officer concluded the marks on the ravine were consistent with being made by the registered Land Cruiser. So I'm not even sure where the information came from that they were consistent with the unregistered Land Cruiser. To the officer's eternal credit, he approached defence solicitors after the trial and informed them he had made an error in his original calculations. After making further calculations, he concluded the marks in the ravine could not have been made by the unregistered Land Cruiser, that is, the Bush Basher. If the Bush Basher Ute did not make the tracks down the ravine and back up again, what vehicle did? And when? The only other possible vehicles in the area at the time, I believe, could have belonged to one of the prospectors or a police vehicle. It is not beyond the realms of possibility a police 4x4 drove down that ravine after being advised of the find at the bottom, or dropping SES searches off at some point. Perhaps any SES volunteers who are at Palmerville and who are listening to this podcast can enlighten us on the origin of that evidence. It is appropriate at this point to discuss the evidence surrounding the gunshots the prospectors heard, because that tied in directly with crime scenes one and two. Back to the weapons used to murder Bruce Schuler. It was concluded three weapons were missing from Palmerville when police searched the property. A .22 bolt-action rifle, a .22 lever-action rifle, and a .357 Magnum handgun. You have heard it was likely Diane Wilson fired the first shot from a .22 long barrel lever-action rifle. 
And just on that point, a day after the murder, police recovered a .22 bolt-action rifle from the cabin of the unregistered bush basher. So between the murder and the next afternoon, for whatever reason, the Strubers removed the .22 lever-action rifle from the vehicle and replaced it with a .22 bolt-action rifle. Even though the evidence now shows there was much confusion of the type of weapon fired at Bruce or on Kevin Groth's evidence fired into the air. You will remember Bidner telling the Supreme Court Diane loaded the rifle in a downward and upward hand movement. Struber then fired the killing shot from a .357 Magnum handgun. Up close and personal. Except that was not what the prospectors told police. Prospector Dan Bidner spoke with police by telephone on the night Bruce Schuler was reported missing. Monday, 9 July 2012. He had two conversations with police during the evening. He told Detective O'Dwyer that both Diane and Struber got out of the car when it first stopped. O'Dwyer recorded that conversation. These are his words, but not his voice. My last vision of him was her getting out of the car. Her with the gun. And incidentally, Bidner's version of who did and didn't get out of the car at that time and what happened next changed four times during the course of the investigation and trial. A red flag right there. But who did and didn't get out of the car is a conversation for another episode. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Importantly there was no mention of reaching in and getting the weapon out. He made no mention of Diane loading the weapon in a downward and upward motion, that is, in a lever-action style. He also told the detective it sounded like a shotgun being fired. George Wilson said 
They used to carry a rifle in the utes between the seats, not behind the seat. Bidner gave a statement to police the next day, 10 July 2012, the day after the disappearance of Bruce, while matters were still fresh in his memory. He said in part at point 69 the following, these are his words, but not his voice. I had a clear view of her and the car. It was a windy and overcast day and there was nothing blocking my view. I was 50 metres from Bruce and they were probably 30 metres from Bruce. At this stage, the car quickly came to a stop. Her door opened and she got out. She then flipped the seat forward and I then saw her pull a gun from behind the seat. She didn't raise it into the air. As soon as I saw it come out of the car, I thought, shit, she's got it. She's got the gun. The gun had a black stick shape. I don't know if it was a rifle or a shotgun, but with that, I turned while I was crouching and walked about 50 metres. So I crouched down, and just as I did, I heard a gunshot go off. It sounded like a shotgun going off. When I heard it, I wasn't that concerned at that time. I thought that because he's, Stephen, done this before and he does this to everyone all the time. I was like, here he goes again. It was common knowledge that he would use his gun and he would just have a go at you, abuse you and send you on your way, send you packing. Later in the statement, he recounted a comment he made to Tremaine Anderson. Nah, see no one except you. Maybe that's what the two shots were. He shot at both of them or he was shooting above. Usually he shoot above you. Bidner would later say he was 100% certain it was a rifle. And who gets a black stick out of the car from behind the seat? And who loads a stick in a lever-action manner? So why say it had a black stick shape? Why not just say it was a rifle? Three days later, during a videoed reenactment, Bidner recounted that it was around one to two minutes, or three to four minutes, between when Diane got out of the vehicle and she fired the shot. And at trial, he agreed it was three to four minutes between Diane getting out of the car and the shot being fired. That defies comprehension. Bruce was aware of the vehicle by this time. He'd told his dog to be quiet. Diane was aware of Bruce because, according to Bidner, she heard the dog and indicated for Stephen Struber to stop the ute. What did she do and what did Bruce do for somewhere between one and four minutes until she fired the weapon? with no apparent conversation between them. The intrigue is not in the length of time between the gun and the shot, but the fact that there was any gap at all. And then there were those comments by Bidner, which I reproduce here because they are significant. When I heard it, I wasn't that concerned at that time. I thought that because he's, Stephen, done this before and he does this to everyone all the time. I was like, here he goes again. It was common knowledge that he would use his gun 
and he would just have a go at you, abuse you and send you on your way, send you packing. Later in the statement, he shot at both of them or you were shooting above. Usually he shoot above you. Well, sorry, Denny. I specifically went looking for evidence to support your claim and there was none anywhere. Except for you and Tremaine, that is, of course. At point 79 in his statement to police, Bidner said in part the following. These are his words, but not his voice. I then heard a vehicle start up and drive off. It didn't go far and it stopped. It sounded like it only drove 20 yards and then maybe 10 to 15 minutes later there was a second gunshot. This is discussed in detail in episode 5. And at the committal proceedings held in 2014, Bidner again made no mention Diane Wilson loading the weapon in a downward and upward motion. He again referred to it as having a black stick shape. During his evidence in chief at trial in 2015, on day four, Bidner once again described the weapon as having a black stick shape. Despite confirming, he held the belief 100% that it was a rifle. The Crown Prosecutor did not ask him if it was a shotgun. There was a missing .22 rifle, not a missing shotgun. Bidnar was asked in cross-examination if he ever thought the weapon was a shotgun. He said the following. I'd say that at one stage because I thought the boom sounded like a shotgun. I only said that out of the, what the sound of the gun was. But I'm no expert on guns. I'm just, it was a very loud boom. Despite also telling the court he had owned firearms for 20 years. And apparently he knew enough about weapons to say it was a shotgun he heard when he first gave a statement. At trial, in response to a question where he described the weapon as a shotgun to Detective O'Dwyer, on the night of the 9th, he replied, Maybe I did, only through the sound. Bidner replied to this question, You didn't tell him to watch out? No, because that would have alerted them to my position. In the reenactment of 13 July, police had a 4x4 drive up the track. Bidner heard the vehicle approaching before he saw it. He watched it approach for about 150 metres, crawling along. One minute and five seconds later, the vehicle stopped across from him. How much time do you need to alert your mate to hide? Whilst describing Diane getting the gun at trial, he then described Diane Wilson loading the gun in a downward and upward movement for the very first time. Red flag. A Winchester rifle immediately comes to mind. When queried as to why he had never mentioned that before, he replied, No one ever asked me. And was it a coincidence that by that time it was determined the only missing long arms were a .22 bolt action rifle and a .22 lever action rifle? It has been well documented that witnesses have been known to embellish their evidence to ensure a conviction. Is that what happened here? 
The suggestion it was a shotgun and sounded like a shotgun had disappeared as abruptly and as permanently as Bruce Schuller had. Lever-action shotguns do exist, but they are not as common as the pump-action, double-barrel, semi-automatic or brake-action. I have never seen a lever-action shotgun, despite firing many, many shotguns. And Struber certainly didn't own any lever-action shotguns. In a conversation around 2019 with former Laura policeman Bob Hayden, Bidner told him he now believed the rifle he saw Diane with to be a high-powered 30-30 rifle, Winchester lever-action rifle, the one she always carried. By then, of course, he was aware Anderson Groth had described the weapon as a 30-30 or a high-caliber rifle. Best if everyone is on the same page, right? So what was it, Denny? A rifle or a shotgun? Second amigo Tremaine Anderson also gave a statement on 10 July 2012, the day after the disappearance of his new acquaintance, whilst matters were still fresh in his memory. This is part of what he said at point 31. These are his words, but not his voice. I heard the car stop, and it would have been about two minutes since I saw it. I then heard a loud shot. It sounded like a high-powered rifle. It was probably a 30-30, which is what I've seen Diane with. In a video reenactment three days later, Anderson said the shot was within about two minutes of the car pulling up, confirming what he said in his statement. And in the same video interview, he said he heard a loud, high-powered rifle shot, not a shotgun. His words. And a bit later, he commented that his head was still ringing from the rifle shot. Were Bidner and Anderson witnesses to the same attempted murder, do you think? At trial in 2015, he said in evidence, I heard a loud gunshot. The prosecutor did not ask him what sort of weapon he thought caused the gunshot. The court hearing it was a 30-30 rifle would have complicated matters. There were no missing 30-30 rifles. In response to further questioning, he said, I then heard another loud gunshot. During cross-examination, Anderson was not asked and did not say what sort of weapon he thought he heard fired that day. Another missed opportunity to clarify exactly what happened up there. And what were the defence barristers doing, anyway? In a phone call to a friend later that night, Anderson told him he heard three gunshots in total. The two gunshots described above, followed by a third a bit later. A claim Anderson denied at trial. The silence from the defence tables was deafening. The third amigo, Rusty, also gave the police a statement on 10 July 2012, whilst the matter was fresh in his memory. He said in part at point 22, these are his words, but not his voice. Within a minute or two, I heard a rifle shot. I think the time was around 9.30am. Of course, we had all discussed we were to meet back at the original split-up spot in one hour. It sounded like a large-caliber rifle to me, 
and it sounded like it was in the air and not into the ground. I'm a registered weapons licence holder and I have been a recreational shooter for a long time. I've gotten rid of all my high-powered rifles and only have a 22 Magnum and an air rifle now. The noise it made was not muffled, it was clear and very loud. There is no way I could have been confused. It definitely was a high-powered rifle. At a reenactment three days later, he was not asked about the gunshot and just told the camera he heard a gunshot. In a statement to police three months later, he said at point 13 the following. These are his words, but not his voice. In paragraph 22 of my statement, dated the 10th of July 2012, I said that the gunshot noise I heard was in the air and not in the ground. I said this because just being around rifles a little bit, just the sound, it sounded clear, the shot. It didn't sound like it had hit anything, like the ground I suppose you would hear a thud. After the second gunshot, when I was still moving, I remember smelling smoke. I would have smelt it maybe 30 seconds after the second shot. It smelt like gun smoke, like from a fired rifle. The smell of like burnt powder. I've smelt it before when using firearms for shooting pigs, dingoes and that. At trial in 2015, Groth was not questioned by either the prosecutor or defence counsels as to what sort of weapon was used when he heard the shots. The prosecutor did ask this question. What experience have you had with firearms? These are his words, but not his voice. I've had, yeah, rifles and been playing with the rifles for, yeah, well, all of my childhood sort of thing. Yeah, right through up until now. The prosecutor did not question if the weapon had been fired into the air or not. What were the defence counsel doing? After Groth left the witness box, it was evident the inconvenient truth that he believed the weapon to be a large calibre rifle fired into the air did not see the light of day in that courtroom. And the defence barristers... Why were they not asking what sort of weapon was fired and whether it was fired into the ground or into the air? Ask yourself this. If Diane Wilson was hell-bent on murdering Shula, why would she fire into the air? And why would she wait several minutes before firing? If there was a warning shot, wouldn't there be yelling and shouting from Bruce? Like, what the hell? From Diane, don't move. No conversation at all on the evidence. No cries of pain, of fear, of anger. But witness Groth was asked if he smelt anything. Groth smelt gunpowder, he said. But he wasn't asked what sort of weapon was used or whether she fired at the victim. You couldn't make this up. To be honest, When I read he smelt gun smoke, my interest was piqued. I thought that evidence was incredulous, bordering on ridiculous, from 300 metres away. But more importantly, why did the prosecutor even ask that question? I mean, where did it take his case? He had three witnesses seeing and hearing rifle shots. Groth heard the first gunshot a couple of minutes after he heard the dog bark. Bidner said the dog barked, causing the ute to stop. 
we are back to the Mexican standoff between Shula and Wilson. High noon. Shula's last stand in the Palmerville wastelands. The cowgirl holding the lever action rifle on her hip with cowboy boots on probably. Bruce with the detector by his side squinting in the sun. Hat brimmed down low. Smoking a cigar maybe. I'm joking of course but no one actually asks the question why would Diane Wilson stare down her victim for up to four minutes before firing at him or in the air depending who you believe you couldn't make this stuff up or could you I am not suggesting there's been any fabrication the evidence has a voice of its own and when necessary, it will speak. After the gunshot, the offenders then sit there for up to 15 minutes. What are they doing? Discussing their next move? Meanwhile, Bruce is frantically running for his life and not dropping anything. He only managed to make it 140 metres in 15 minutes. What was he doing? And with the gully and the high ridges, it was very unlikely the offenders could even see where Bruce was or where he had run to. From the videos I have seen, I am confident they would not have been able to see which direction Bruce took. How did they even know Bruce ran 140 metres up the gully anyway? Maybe Diane shot him with a GPS tracking device and not a bullet. Groth saw nothing and heard little. He was then MIA, missing in action, for the next almost six hours, if you can believe that. And then, when he gave his police statement, he was asked to draw a mud map, a diagram of where everyone was and the directions they took. Unfortunately, the maps the police offered him were too big or too small to identify where everyone was located when all this went down, which was certainly regrettable in the circumstances. His evidence, however, of how long he walked for, how long he rested for, how long he hid for, was very precise. And on top of that, there was a conversation with Tremaine where he stated he heard the motorcycle. Rusty would have been literally no more than two kilometres from the campsite at any given time. Not more than a 20-minute walk in a straight line. Clearly, from his evidence, he was not lost. And if you are that frightened, wouldn't the camp with your friends be the safest place in Palmerville? and not stumbling around in the bush. Yet it took him six hours to make his way back to camp. It seemed to me Rusty did not want to be a witness that day. He saw little, heard even less. He reminded me of Sergeant Schultz in Hogan's Heroes, a TV sitcom of the 70s. Oh, he's going to take it off again. Uh. After he steals the tank. Oh? In the Panzer Division. Oh! Brings it here into the bed. Oh, I see nothing. I was not here. I did not even get up 
this morning. To be fair, though, Groth maintained the line, the weapon he heard Diane fire, was a large-caliber rifle, and it was fired into the air, not into the ground. And he said the headboard of the ute was an orangey colour. Certainly not Struber's vehicle. Was Rusty trying to say, in his own way, it did not happen the way his friends claimed? Was he essentially speaking on behalf of Bruce from the grave? After all, he was Bruce's mate of 20 years. But all his comments were ignored. By everyone. All his evidence went the same way as Bruce Schuler. What was Rusty even doing in the witness box? He basically had nothing to say. Simple, really. He was a prop for witnesses Anderson and Bidner. With him there nodding vigorously to everything said by Bidner and Anderson, the court would soak up every word they said like a sponge. He was crucial to the Crown case. Without him, some would say all the Crown had was two grifters trying to sell a harbour bridge. Snake oil salesmen plying their trade. So how Bruce actually died was, and is, pure conjecture. Assumptions were made. Inferences. But definitely not speculation. Speculation is not a word used in legal circles, ever. But I am hearing a lot of speculation in this case. It was concluded, not speculated, that Bruce Schuler died of gunshot wounds. A .22 lever action rifle and a .357 handgun. There never appeared to be any doubt, was there? In 2018, a coronial investigation was held into the death of Bruce Schuler. Coroner Nerida Wilson said this in part. These are her words, but not her voice. Findings required by Section 45. How he died. Bruce Schuler is likely to have died from shotgun wounds inflicted by Stephen Struber and or Diane Wilson. The precise circumstances of his death are unknown. Cause of death. The medical cause of Bruce Gavin Schuler's death is likely to have been fatal shotgun wounds. What? Wait! You have heard police say he was shot with a .22 and a .357. Detective McLeish said so. These are words credited to him by a journalist. And of course that revolver is missing and the Winchester twenty-two she used is missing. And they've gone missing because those bullets will be in Bruce's body. We have now heard the witnesses variously describe the weapon and sounds as a shotgun or a large-calibre rifle or a thirty-thirty rifle. Not a .22, which is not a high-powered rifle anyway, nor a .357 handgun, which also does not sound like a high-powered rifle. And remember, Bidner heard a shotgun and described a lever action. 
and Struber did not own any lever-action shotguns. The court never heard this evidence, but we do. Were any of Struber's shotguns missing when police searched the property? No. If Bruce Schuller was killed by a shotgun, or a thirty thirty, or a high-powered rifle, whatever that is, why would the only weapons the offenders hide be a .22 rifle and a .357 handgun? Perhaps the killing of Bruce Schuller was not as straightforward as it seemed. I have emailed Detective Sergeant McLeish and requested an interview for the podcast. Generally, police are reticent about giving interviews. Detective Sergeant McLeish gave many interviews, so he should be kind enough to talk to me. I will ask you, the listener, this question. You would accept Rusty Groth's evidence without question, wouldn't you? After all, he was Bruce's mate. The Crown presented him as an honest witness. He gave police two statements, three months apart, and was very specific. It was a large calibre rifle he heard, fired into the air, not into the ground. So on his evidence, Diane did not shoot Bruce. Not that the court heard any of that. A bit like some newspapers, actually. Don't let the truth stand in the way of a good story. Where was Diane Wilson's defence counsel and Stephen Struber's defence counsel when that evidence wasn't being heard? So Stephen Struber must have murdered Bruce. Diane was obviously there when Stephen Struber killed Bruce, but did she participate in the murder? Was she a willing or an unwilling accomplice? There was no forensic evidence to show they carried Bruce's body away. There is now no forensic evidence to show they were even at the first or second crime scenes. They made no admissions. In fact, denials and continue to do so. I think this is a fair and reasonable question. If the jury had heard the evidence from Kevin Rusty Groth that the first shot was from a large-calibre rifle and was fired into the air, not in the ground. If the jury heard the evidence from Tremaine Anderson that he heard a high-powered rifle discharged from Diane's direction. The jury did hear the evidence Dan Bidner saw her point a black stick in the direction of where Shula was last seen, and heard a shotgun round discharged. No one saw Diane Wilson shoot at Bruce. No blood was found at the primary crime scene. No evidence of him being wounded was found there. No evidence of him even being there, as you have heard, apart from the prospectors. Would the jury have convicted Diane Wilson based on that evidence. I would suggest the judge may actually consider instructing the jury to find her not guilty. But hey, I'm not a lawyer, I'm just telling the story. The failure to put the evidence regarding the type of weapon used and whether it was fired into the air or not in front of the jury likely had catastrophic 
consequences to the outcome of the trial. A retrial could be held based on that issue alone, in my view. But as I said, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not giving legal advice. I will also leave you with this thought. Why did it take 11 years for that evidence to see the light of day? Why did it take a podcaster to air that evidence? It seems to me the wheels have fallen off our justice system in the prosecution of Diane Wilson and Stephen Struber. Why was that? Prosecutor Rees, are you listening? Your thoughts? Defence counsel Mr Feeney, are you listening? Your thoughts? Defence counsel now District Court Judge Trevino, are you listening? Your thoughts? And if you thought the Crown case had taken a few body blows in this episode, it gets positively punch drunk in the next episode. I mentioned in episode one, when I'm reviewing a case, one of the things I look for is dishonest evidence. If you are wondering whether I've found dishonest evidence in this case to this point, I say this. During the review of the Leanne Holland murder, I identified more than 75 red flags with the investigation. Witnesses lying on oath. Police misconduct. Police planting evidence in the crime scene. Police fabricating evidence to implicate Graham Stafford. Poor legal representation of the defendant. With the Palmerville murder, I think I'm going to need a bigger box of red flags. That's it for episode 4, An Inconvenient Truth. If you have any information on the whereabouts of Bruce Shuler's remains, or know someone who does, I urge you to message his widow Fiona, or make contact through the Facebook page, Justice for Bruce Shuler. You can also contact me if you have questions, information or feedback via my Facebook page, Graham Crowley Podcast Investigations, or email me direct at graham5353 at live.com. That's G-R-A-E-M-E 5353. If you wish to remain anonymous, you can be absolutely assured your details remain hidden. Please join me in Episode 5, Digging Deep where I continue to assess the evidence from the crime scenes and evidence given at trial. I wish everyone a Merry Christmas and stay safe. As Bruce Shuler would have turned 60 on the 29th of December this year, I thought it appropriate I drop an episode on that day. Please tune in. Please follow the podcast. Please rate and review the podcast. Just go to the podcast app, scroll down until you find review and hit stars or place a review. Please tell your family and friends. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Music by Janet G. You can find her music on YouTube. If you like the podcast, you can support me for the one-off cost of a cup of coffee. Details of that in the show notes. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.